Welcome to The Den Tapes, a podcast dedicated to the reading of horror fiction. I'm your host, Tony, so go ahead, sit back, relax, and let's see if we can give you a case of the heebie-jeebies. This week's episode will contain some content of a graphic nature. Listener discretion is advised. Today's story is called The Visitor. It was the dead of winter back in 09 when Eric Langston, Mark Kender, Antonio Velmont, Bishop Channing, and Logan Hughes entered the famed Rocky Top Studios to cut their third record, a record that would be their last, arguably their best. A record that almost never saw the light of day due to the horrendous circumstances surrounding its creation. We've all heard about cursed films, cursed albums, cursed books. However, those 12 songs on that record, they changed the atmosphere. They harbor and simultaneously vent everything that is wrong with the world in a measly 48 minutes. Look, I'm not talking about black metal or hip-shaking Elvis kind of stuff. Something about this record would even give those spiked gauntlet-wearing Nordman pause. At least they can wipe off the war paint and slip into a pair of jeans. There's just no getting away from whatever it is this record became. I mean to tell you that terrible occurrences arise during or shortly after the first, last, and every other note in between is played through the device of your choosing. Let's go ahead and start at the beginning so you can get the full scope of why you should never drop the needle on this wretched piece of music history. Eric Langston played the casino circuit during most of the early aughts after cutting his teeth with the regionally successful hardcore outfit armed and youthful. When the casino gigs would slow down, Eric found himself teaching guitar lessons and hawking musical gear at Beartown Music. He was a wizard on the fretboard, a true virtuoso of the riff. The notes would slice through an amplifier so undeniably that if you were in the room when he was playing, you dropped everything you were doing to watch him diddle those six strings like a maestro. Enter Antonio Belmont, the rugged, long-haired, camouflaged, cargo-panted, black Sabbath shirt-wearing, eager to be the next Zach Wilde guitar player in serious need of lessons. Eric and Antonio meshed from the first time Eric asked of Antonio, Hey, uh, let's go ahead and uh, have you show me what you can do so I can assess where we need to start. Under a year later, they were standing together in a converted, standalone brick garage, watching Logan Hughes lay down some serious chops on a Black Pearl custom drum kit. After figuring out the chemistry needed to write a handful of songs was not only there, but oozed through the brick, shaking the house next to what would become Hazy Howl's practice space, three-fifths of the band was set. Months later, Bishop Channing strutted into Beartown Music and dropped some considerable change on a five-string Music Man bass, Stingray, black on black with silver knobs. 
Eric was not bashful when he told Bishop, That's a lot of bass for hobby playing. You should join up with the cats I've been jamming with. We need a good low-end guy. Eric introduced Bishop to the boys. By 11.30 that evening, Bishop solidified his reign as bass player for Hazy Howe. When the four of them broke from practice and strolled to the end of the road tavern, one could say fate stepped in and did the remainder of the work. They sat, calling through that evening's offering of karaoke participants for a lead singer. But as many of you that have been to a karaoke night know, it's not about the talent, but the fun when someone is drunk enough to squawk their way through top 40 hits. Fate, however, is a tricky bitch. As the four of them settled their tab with the barkeep, the opening chords of fairies wear boots rang out. This warranted four heads in perfect syncopation, turning slowly. First at each other, then to the corner of the bar where Mark Kender performed like he was center stage at Madison Square Garden. Oh man, it's got to be him. He's who we need. Logan muttered as he ordered another round of beers for the four of them. Hey, uh, barkeep, make it five, he said as he tilted his head towards the man with the microphone. They clapped if they had just seen Black Sabbath themselves perform the song. With a slow saunter, they swooped around Mark and offered him the beer. Eric, again with zero bashfulness, announced, Hey man, you need to front our band. You'd be the perfect fit. Mark smiled, nodded, took the beer, and the five bottles clacked together at the neck. The rest, it's history. A history that Rocky Top Studios, Seven Swords record label, and I wish to remain exactly that. In the past. Hazy Howell's first release did great, locally. Everyone in Milton loved the racy, raucous, heavy tunes the five-piece peddled at their live shows. Almost any night of the week you'd go out, you would see a Hazy Hal t-shirt. I once saw one at my Monday night AA meeting after a fellow recoverer had spent a week skiing out in Milton, California. That was my first introduction to the band. We all should have known something was amiss back on June 15, 2005. Hazy Howe was set to wrap up the night as the last band on a local bill that had drawn out 150 people. 149 people would leave the club that night unscathed. During their last song, Antonio, in a fit of rock stardom, smashed his guitar on the stage. Stephen Harold, who had been at every Hazy Howe show, asked if he could have the headstock, having the band sign it with a sharpie. Antonio asked the adoring fan, Hey man, uh, you want me to cut the strings off of that? Stephen Harold answered, Nah man, it's more authentic with them dangling off of it like this. The band loaded out and had a celebratory drink at the bar before departing. Stephen Harold perched himself upon a barstool and remained there, reeling from how cool the signed piece of broken guitar would look hanging on the wall of his man cave. Drink after drink, he got progressively more enthusiastic to show it off to fellow patrons. Twice, the bartender asked him to calm it down. The third time, Stephen Harold stood from the stool, aggressively telling the barkeep to go ahead and close him out. The broken headstock fell to the ground. The snapped guitar strings wound around the back of the stool caused the mangled piece of wood to hang, darting, swaying as Stephen Harold pulled cash from his pocket. As he slapped the bills atop the bar, he stumbled, falling backwards. The skin of his scalp, popping the 
bones and his skull cracking as the force of the fall landed him directly onto the sharp wooden splinters where the headstock had broken from the neck of the guitar. As he convulsed, blood spraying on the floor, his fellow barmates did everything they could to help, but by the time the paramedics showed up, Stephen Harold had taken his last breath. Had you asked any of them how they felt about the death of Stephen Harold, the members of Hazy Howell would have shuddered with regret. But in the end, it wasn't their fault. It was nothing more than an awful accident. Of course, the mythos behind the ordeal skyrocketed them into a thing of legend in the underground metal circuit. Something else that caused me to raise an eyebrow as I followed their growth. Eric would even tell you that it is the lone reason Seven Swords became interested in signing them. It's just, you know, this brutal thing that oozes the right kind of publicity. Terry Blake said to the members of Hazy Howe when he met with them. Terry was the unflinchingly sadistic, money-hungry AR guy for Seven Swords. I had hired him. He helped turn them from a successful local band into a highly sought-after regional act. He even secured them a slot on the Aftershock stage during the summer of 07, right after they had released their second record. After a rigorous tour that saw the band travel from Seattle to New York via I-90, then back through Boston, all the way to San Diego via Route 66. There was a much needed break from the road as they got back to work writing new songs for their third release, finishing the album in spring of 09. The hiatus came after a roadside mishap, nearly train wrecking the latter half of the tour. In Bishop's words, Oh man, the band really struggled to perform after seeing the shit we saw on the side of the road that night. We needed to chew on that, turn it into score of songs that wouldn't help us cope. He had muttered these words during an interview six weeks before they stepped foot into Rocky Top Studios. They had wrapped up a stellar performance at Daisy Dukes in Austin, Texas. That night was full steam ahead, giving it their all, pistons firing like dragon's breath. Some people won't ever understand the natural high that comes after a show like that, the heart pumping, but not too fast, but loud. Loud enough that you swear anyone in the room with you can hear it. The adrenaline seeping through the veins so fast the lights around you seem to flicker. The kind of jolt that doesn't leave until your heart almost stops and that deep well of horror floods in your stomach. For all the money that was pumped into that tour, not much was given to the band in terms of transportation. They had a sprinter bought from residuals that on paper Antonio had owned. It was no tour bus, meaning there was no onboard facilities to drain the lizard when Mother Nature called. A little past 4 a.m. somewhere in the middle of Texas, Bishop pulled the Sprinter to the side of the freeway so Mark and Eric could do their business. Antonio was fast asleep and Logan was neck deep in one of the games he fancied on his PSP. When Bishop got out to stretch his legs, he joked, with the two relieving themselves about it looking like Texas Chainsaw Country. The sky was clear and the stars gleamed, sparkling above them. Bishop raised a hand to his face to shield the oncoming headlights. A lifted truck, flat black, with red undercarriage lights and a Confederate flag front license plate came barreling down I-10 towards them, heading back towards the way they had come. 
Jiggling their pieces dry, Eric and Mark quickly shoved their members back into their pants, zipped up, and tightened their belts. As the truck neared, it slowed. The driver cackling. Mark once said with eyes affixed on the ground at his feet during the same interview. Part of the reason we wanted to put so much work into this next album is because that laugh, man, it spilled out of the cab of that truck. You think the devil is evil or crooked politicians are evil, that's fine, but that laugh embodied no evil like I had heard, ever. We wanted to try and create that same experience for our fans, not to scare them, but to offer them something they probably had never really heard before. As the truck came to a slow creep, that laugh somehow echoing all around them, something was thrown from the bed by another figure that seemed to be towering over them due to the sheer height of the truck. The tires squealed and the man sped off, spewing exhaust and howling shrills into the early morning air. It was then they realized it wasn't something, but someone that had been thrown from the rear of the truck. Someone that was either barely still alive or very recently deceased. A bloodied white and black checkered comforter unraveled as the body rolled to a stop, coming to its final rest at the front tire of the sprinter. It revealed a naked young man who had been brutally beaten and given a Lone Star necktie, similar to the Colombian variation but with a smile cut up and along the ears, pulling the scalp back and down around the front of the neck just under the chin, revealing the flesh of the back of the neck. It's also known as a redneck throat slit. Luckily for the five members of Hazy Howe, what kept them from being detained as a murderous horde was the fact that Logan had paused his game and filmed the whole thing with the digital camera they had brought with them on tour. They actually sampled that malevolent laugh as the opening and closing seconds on The Age to Come, the fateful record you're soon to learn about. In the background of the video, you can hear rough pre-production recordings of the songs they were going to lay down on the album coming from inside the Sprinter. The guys in the band swear they weren't listening to it when they had stopped, but it's there in the video. Terry Blake informed the band on August 5th of 2009 that he had solidified a 10-day allotment at Rocky Top Studios with famed heavy metal producer Derwin Dahl. He also set up a series of public appearances for Hazy Howe ranging from Barry's Record Exchange in Chicago to an extremely tense hour-long interview with Chet Donaldson in Laramie, Wyoming at the base of the Rockies, 12 miles down from where Rocky Top Studios sat. The facility was built from the bones of the old Northlander Ski Resort. The resort went under in the 70s due to ownership getting caught up in a massive embezzlement scheme. Sony threw a fat stack of cash at the city of Laramie to acquire the property, turning it into a premier one-stop shop for top-tier artists. Usually vacant during the heart of winter, Terry Blake, being the weasel that he was, scored the studio time, a floor of rooms, and the use of the kitchen for Dahl himself and the members of Hazy Howe for a paltry 12 grand. That's a third of the going rate for five days most top 40 acts would pay in the dead of spring. The only stipulation was Rocky Top nor Sony would pay any employees to be there to oversee Hazy Howe's time. 
I tried to hire the Laramie security firm, Padras, to drop in every few days to make sure everything was fine and that the group was behaving themselves. But I was told that they would not go up the mountain during the heart of winter. It was too dangerous. When Antonio informed the others the contract had been signed and the studio time had been paid for, Hazy Howe decided to book three shows on their way from Milton to Laramie. One in Reno, one in Salt Lake, and one in Denver, where they would pick up Terry Blake from Denver International and circle back to Laramie. On December 3rd, 2009, they loaded up the Sprinter and headed east with their cozy northern California town in the rear view. Not one of them knew what the following nine days would impart upon them. How they would release an archaic crux of disruption onto the world, one I've barely scraped the surface of understanding and how no one would ever see the members of Hazy Howe, Derwin Dahl, or Terry Blake ever again. December 6th, 2009. Naturally, Terry took over the driving duties when the snow started to pummel the Sprinter. Terry grew up in Laramie, commuting up the mountains to snowboard. He was a natural in the snow. After he settled into the driver's seat, he told the guys in confidence, Hey, uh... I, uh, I come from money. Old money. I helped Sony get into the Northlander, actually. I am also working on a deal to, you know, jump you guys from Seven Swords to Sony's roster. You'll be filling stadiums like Metallica before I'm done with you, I promise. This piece of information split the band in half, almost. Eric and Bishop turned their noses up and claimed they'd have no part in selling out. Mark, the lone business-savvy member of Hazy Howe, affirmed his stance by muttering, We'll see, you know, how good the deal is. Most big labels like that just abuse their platform and totally hammer the artists into the ground. Antonio and Logan expressed their excitement to play festivals overseas. Oh man, that'll open a lot of doors for us, Logan said excitedly. Just under an hour from Rocky Top, Terry Blake had set the mood for the following days by creating a sense of inner turmoil, allowing them to hash out a future none of them were going to even have. By the time the sprinter started to ascend up Harrison grade, everyone in the van thought they'd never make it up the mountain alive. The blizzard had peaked, whiting out the road, causing Terry to slow the advance to a crawl. He had to use the snow posts as a guide. Man, this is like the blizzard of 96, he said, perching himself on the edge of the driver's seat, hands firmly at 10 and 2, with his chin hovering just above them. After an hour and a half, the sprinter finally came to a rest at the loading dock of Rocky Top Studios. Derwin Dahl was bundled in a gigantic parka and smoking a cigarette just outside the dock door. In a soft Scandinavian accent, he suggested, uh, let uh, the snow pass. We'll load the gear after. I was watching the news and the man said the storm should subside within an hour. He beckoned them inside where the six passengers from the Sprinter shook the snow from themselves and each shook Dahl's hand. While they waited for the storm to die out, Terry gave the guys a quick tour of the property. Right inside the loading dock was a snowcat, surrounded by steel shelves containing every tool you could think of. Uh, groundskeeper is unfortunately, you know, one of the employees that was skimped on when we booked this time. Terry noted as to why the snowcat had not been used to clear the road they ever so slowly had climbed. 
Inside the double steel doors from the dock was a wide hallway explained to the guys as, This is uh, the way to everywhere in this building, Terry said. The hall was dull and lit to the max with fluorescent lights hanging overhead, spaced eight feet apart. The walls were bland with no decor. Damn, man, this seems like a death march corridor, Logan slurred under his breath. Up and to the right is where the studios sit. Further around the corner there is the kitchen, Dahl explained. The door to the studio reported a clang that echoed through the massive hallway. Kind of uh, spooky, isn't it? Dahl asked with a grin. He continued while ushering them to follow his stride into the big, open room. I've been here by myself for a full day now. When you are in a place of this magnitude, the walls sometimes seem to breathe, exhaling awful noises when you are trying to find your way around. Luckily, I have you guys now, and we have this room, sound treated to be the absolute extreme of quiet. A clap exploded and died out quickly. Everyone turned to see Antonio grinning from ear to ear. What? And he's right. Did you hear how quickly the sound went dead? He giggled and pointed towards a set of heavy wooden doors at the end of the tracking room. Uh, is that the board in there? He asked. Dahl shook his head. Yes, and complete with a fireplace as well. It's very, quite cozy. He waved a hand in the air again. The group followed him, their footsteps on the wooden floor falling flat with eerie silence boasting over the sound. The two doors were carved from northern ash, featuring two figures floating along a mountainous range. The figure on the left door was smiling, much like Antonio had just been moments before. Slightly sinister, but playful. The figure on the right door had a stern look. The eyes, even though carved in brown, pierced the onlooker's soul. Each holding a giant staff, behind the head of the staff on the left was the sun, behind the other, the moon. Dahl swung the doors open. A swoosh whispered through the entering bodies, dying only inches into the room they were exiting. It's kind of creepy how quiet this tracking room is. Probably going to be a fucking pain in the ass listening to all the voices in my head without something to distract me, Logan said matter-of-factly. The other members of Hazy Howe laughed it off, but deep down they knew it was only half a joke. That's when Eric heard the voice of the visitor for the first time. Show them. He jerked his head around, seeing Dahl pointing towards the mixing console. He shook his head, but the voice still said again, Show them. Cast your hem into the unknowing world. A quick pat on the back from Bishop brought Eric back to reality. Man, that's a good-looking setup. API! They did not skimp when they built this out, that's for sure. Bishop groaned through a smile as he ran his finger along the wood of the control desk. That's when they all discovered Terry standing in front of the fireplace at the rear of the control room. Hey, Terry, you all right, man? Mark asked as he sauntered over to him. Terry's eyes were glazed with orange hues dancing as the flames in front of him were, mimicking their flowing pattern as he swayed from foot to foot, muttering, They shall, they shall. They shall, they shall, they shall, they shall, they shall, they shall, 
Mark looked back at the group, who each had a confused look on their face. Bishop, the largest member of the group and donned with the moniker Bodyguard, walked swiftly to the opposite side of Terry. He raised one of his hands and clasped it onto Terry's shoulder and gave him a quick shake. Hey, Terry! He yelled loud enough to startle everyone in the room. Terry turned his head, his eyes unblinking, his mouth agape. A terrible whining sound erupting slowly from somewhere deep in his chest. Bishop slapped him hard. Terry crashed to the floor. Uh, uh, what, what the fuck, man? Terry's voice bursting upward at Bishop. Mark knelt down and said softly, Dude, you were totally spacing out. Mumbling, crying like a dog would whine if it was hurt. Terry's eyes blinked a few times and he raised his hand to his face, massaging his temples. Bishop extended one of his hands. Come on, brother, let's get you off the floor. December 7th, 2009. Logan sat behind the drum kit. He leaned forward and gave one of the cymbals a spin, inspecting it for any blemishes or cracks. Through the headphones rang Dahl's voice, soft and serene. We are ready in here. Big deep breath, stretch your arms, and on your cue, Logan, we will start. When Logan drew in his breath, another voice spattered through the cans. You must show them. You must show them. He darted his eyes over to the glass opening in the wall, south of the big wooden doors, to see that Dahl nor anyone else was speaking. From the corner of his eye, he saw one of the big wooden figures on the doors move. At least he thought he did, but when he glided his gaze to the doors, nothing was amiss. He grumbled, raised his arms, hands high above his head, clenched his drumsticks, and let the breath out. He shot a thumbs up into the air. Dahl reported, We are rolling. The metronome clicked and the band began tracking their first song. December 8th, 2009. Antonio shot up from a dead sleep. He panted heavily, struggling to find the lamp on the nightstand. He heard something shuffle in the corner of the room like someone scooting their feet as they got closer to the bed. The light filled the room and he thrusted his shoulders and back onto the headboard, expecting to see someone standing there. But the room was empty. He grabbed his phone and noticed it was 5.56 a.m. Fucking three hours, are you kidding me? He muttered, referring to the fact that Dahl had kept them tracking until 2.30 a.m. He clicked the lamp off and scrolled through some pictures he had taken from the past few days. He yawned deeply and while doing so, blacked out the screen on his phone. He flung the phone to the vacant part of the king-size bed, turning onto his side. His eyes closed and the world faded away again like it had three hours prior. A faint shuffling began to rise in the corner of the room. The figure of something tall flowed from the corner, extending a long, thin arm, resting its gangly hand upon the shoulder of the sleeping man. Hey, you seen or heard from Tonio? Eric asked as he shoved some scrambled eggs into his mouth from a paper plate. Nah, man, I haven't seen him since we wrapped up last night, actually. Bishop retorted. Frustrated that Antonio was late to breakfast, 
Terry rose from the table in the cafeteria that was once used for thousands of skiers and pounced from his chair. He threw a napkin down forcibly, stomping away towards the hall where the sleeping quarters were, the old hotel that once held thousands of sleeping skiers. Tony, let's go, man. Breakfast is almost over. We have to get a jump on the drums this morning to stay on schedule. He yelled at the door loud enough for it to permeate into the room. When he was met with no answer, he continued and banged two more times upon the threshold. Dahl is dialing everything in. We are not paying him thousands of dollars to wait on you, man. As he raised his hand to pound once more, a light flickered at the far end of the hallway. He turned his head to investigate. The door unlatched and glided a few inches open. He brought his glance back to the door, peering into the interior of the room. The bed was empty. Lumbering, echoing footsteps filled the hall. When he darted his eyes back down the hallway, the sound stopped, and 30 yards away stood Antonio, naked, dripping wet with his head hanging towards the floor. The light above him flickered, and in the seconds between darkness and light, Terry swore Antonio was covered in blood. The light stopped malfunctioning. Terry took a step away from the door and towards Antonio. His long, dark hair glazed with the glimmer of ice. Steam with a pink hue rose from his skin. Hey, dickhead, no uh, streaking in the hallways, you hear me? Terry yelled playfully, but his voice trembled and his heart was pounding. Antonio quickly raised one arm, contorting and bending in a way Terry had never seen an arm do. Antonio extended his pointer finger, slowly raising his gaze from the floor to Terry. A windfall of <laughs> filled the hallway. Terry shuddered. Oh, hey man, sorry, I was uh, just getting out of the shower, Antonio said from the doorway, stepping out. Oh, Jesus, man, are you okay? You look like you just shit yourself. Terry darted his head back down the hallway. The lights at the end flickered once more, but no one was there. Come on, man, let's go. I'm starving, Antonio said softly as he patted Terry on the shoulder, guiding him back towards the cafeteria. December 9th, 2009. Terry yawned, glancing up at the clock above the control desk. 918 glowed in bright red blocked font. Dahl played back a section of drums as they all waited for the okay to put their instruments down. The booming drawl of each singled out kick drum, the ear-piercing popping of the snare being soloed, each thwack causing Bishop's head to pound. Dahl pressed the spacebar on the keyboard in front of him and spun around in his chair. With a grin, he stated, I believe the drums are complete. Through the speakers, Logan's voice speckled the room with profanity. Thank fucking God. Each member placed their instruments on a rack to the left of the soundboard. Mark shuffled away from the microphone in vocal booth one. There was a series of four along the right wall each built from old hotel rooms adorned with sliding glass doors. He slid the cans over his head and off his ears, hanging them on the designated hook. 
He turned to the glass door and squinted. His reflection seemed off. Something in the timing of his mirrored movements seemed slower. He jumped back and almost knocked over the stand holding a $2,000 Newman microphone. What he had seen was his reflection, but grinning as it held a finger to its mouth, shushing him. He shook it off, blaming the hallucination on the amount of whiskey he had drank throughout the evening. He made sure the microphone was sturdy and turned back to the door. He watched as Bishop raised his black bass high above his head, bringing it down with a blood-splattering, bone-breaking boom atop the head of Dahl. Turning towards Antonio with a powerful swing, connecting with the side of his head, splitting his cheek along the teeth, exposing the jawbone, tearing the skin away as he stomped towards the door, where behind it, Mark was now cowering. The door slid open, and there was Bishop with a smile. Hey man, so Dahl was just saying that some of your vocals might be keepers. One step closer, right dude? The bloody mess he had seen just seconds earlier was erased from existence. Bishop's bass rested upon the rack yards away from him, just like all the other instruments were. The others in the room were laughing, high-fiving over the completion of the drum tracking. I'm up next, Bishop gleamed with excitement. Mark blinked a few times and hesitated to exit the vocal room. Hey, you all right? You look like shit, man, Bishop said as he stepped towards Mark and put his arm around his shoulder. Mark rubbed his face with both of his hands. Ah, oh, man, I think I'm just seeing shit. He mumbled through his fingers. Outside along the south-facing ridge, snow began to fall softly. A figure stepped from the trees, its face human but androgynous, hair with a tint of black flowed in the wind. The snowflakes melted upon its shoulders, sizzling and evaporating upon resting atop the fabric of the pinstriped suit. As it pulled a hair tie from the inside pocket and fashioned its hair into a tight, firmly fitting ponytail, a smile grew upon its face. It looked up at the old ski lodge turned recording mecca, Licking its lips, it said into the cold night air, They shall show them. The hem is almost complete. The figure that would soon be known to the seven inhabitants as simply the visitor began striding towards the building. As the shot glasses clacked together in a triumphant cheer slogan, the lights in the control room flickered. A voice filled the room. Well done, my cherubs. Each member of the group, thinking one of the others had muttered the phrase, paid no attention and let the whiskey glide down their throats and warm their stomachs. December 10th, 2009 Bishop peered out the window as he opened the curtains. A blast of vibrant whites and grays caused him to wince. All it does up here is fucking snow, he murmured to himself. As he turned from the window, he saw someone down below in the snow shuffling through the courtyard. What the hell? I thought we were alone up here, he thought to himself as he stepped closer to the window, straining over the ledge to catch a glimpse of the person below. When his eyes affixed upon the person, they immediately stopped and slowly turned towards his window, raising a hand and waving at him. The smile on the person's face made Bishop's stomach turn. 
The waving hand curled into a fist, allowing only the pointer finger to dart out. The finger was raised to its pursed lips, that smile now just a sinister grin. The window began cracking, clinking thousands of separations flowing quickly up like intersecting rivers. Bishop gasped and took a few steps back. The cracking slowed. The room fell silent. With a crashing boom that caused him to cover his ears, the window shattered, sending broken glass into the room, large shards ripping his skin away from the bones of his ribcage. He fell to his knees and the snow raged through the broken window, swirling around him like the blizzard they had driven through just a few days earlier. You will show, show them. Came whispering through the blistering sound of wind that consumed the room. Bishop let out a massive yell and toppled over. As he covered his eyes, the room fell silent again. A knock came at the door. Terry's voice, soft from the hall, said, Are you up, buddy? A uh, doll's gonna be ready for you in about an hour. Bishop removed his hands from his eyes. No snow. No broken glass. No bloody ribcage exposed. He took a deep breath and retorted loudly, yeah, I'll be out in a few minutes, man. As he patted at his sides, making sure everything was still intact. He squinted his eyes and glanced at the window. Shaking, he climbed to his feet, using the corner of the bed. Slowly, he walked to the window and peered out. There was no figure there, but there were tracks in the snow where he had seen the person walking. December 11th, 2009. Dahl took his place at the soundboard. Eric and Antonio slid their guitars over their shoulders and began tuning. Logan, Mark, and Bishop sat on the couches along the rear of the control room. Terry stood by the fireplace, leaning against the mantel, using the poker to stoke the burning wood. Outside, the storm that had plastered four feet of snow atop the mountain slowed and the clouds subsided. The late morning sun caused the snow-covered landscape to sparkle. The visitor ascended the front stairs of the once thriving ski lodge, the snow melting under its slick dress shoes with each step it took, sizzling and evaporating instantly. If we're happy with the tones, I think we're ready, Dahl said as he spun around in his chair. Eric and Antonio nodded at each other and then at Dahl. Thundering drums and bass poured from the speakers in the control room. The guitars rang out with vicious notation. The visitor swung the front doors open, snow spilling inside with a gust of wind. It stepped through the threshold, both hands held up, bouncing with fingers articulating the music that was being played in the studio as it hummed along as if it knew the song that was being recorded for the first time ever. Prancing, tapping heels and toes along the vibrant tile of the hall leading to the studio, the visitor danced with a smile on its face listening to the songs take form as if it was orchestrating each and every note being played. For hours, the visitor guided the fingers of Eric and Antonio as they played vigorously, each of them unbeknownst. When Dahl finished his listen-through of the last song, he spun around with a smile on his face. Probably the best work I have ever witnessed. You were playing like men possessed. A hush fell over the room as the door to the control room swung open. That's because they were, Derwin. 
the visitor said as it strolled through the threshold and began clapping at the two guitarists. Hey, who is this? Bishop whispered, leaning over to ask Mark. Mark shrugged, letting him know that he had no clue who the stranger was. Let me assure you all, you're doing the Lord's work. <laughs> the visitor chuckled after the statement left its lips. That's uh, what the people say around here, right? Ugh. Look, I can tell all of you are very, very confused. Logan asked, Are you from Sony? Like a label exec or something? The visitor grinned and pointed at him. One could say I represent the higher-ups. The visitor answered. Dahl stood when he was beckoned to do so by the visitor. You've done well. Now get Mark into the booth and let's wrap this up. The visitor's words coming out in almost a hiss. It's uh, almost midnight, Mark began to refute, but was shushed immediately. You sing through a 45-minute set every time you play live, don't you? You'll be done before you know it. Get in to the booth. The visitor playfully but angrily said, pointing towards the vocal booths. He gave a quick few waves of his hand, shooing Mark off like a dog. Allow me to introduce myself. Centuries ago, I was referred to as Apollo, or some called me Oshun, depended on the part of the world, you know. But all you need to know is simply I'm just a visitor. I have no need for some banal moniker. Your species is just so tied up with the notion of names being singular. An existence tied to being solely yourself, loathing everyone that is not you for various reasons. That's why it's so easy to manipulate you. Bishop stood crossing his arms. This is horseshit, he groaned. The visitor waved a hand similar to the way he had rushed Mark into the vocal booth, and Bishop fell back onto the couch. Did you enjoy my visit, Bishop? You remember, don't you? The visitor asked. Bishop hung his head, rubbing his side, remembering the glass shards, ripping his skin open. The visitor clapped its hands together and stated, Let's get to work. Gerwin, to the board, please. Mark is ready. The rest of you sleep. Another wave of a hand and the others fell into a deep slumber. Mark and Dahl completed the vocal tracking quickly. When Mark slid the glass door back and stepped into the control room, it was 2.17 a.m. The visitor again clapped his hands, just as it had for Eric and Antonio but this time for Mark and Dahl. Dahl stood from the board again, being summoned by the visitor. Your work is done, thank you. Dahl nodded and robotically turned to leave the room. Mark watched as he stopped at the fireplace, picking up the stoker. He buried it into the coals under the fresh logs. He turned and smiled at Mark, an eerie grin that made him feel uneasy. Dahl then thanked the visitor for the opportunity and jammed the sharp end into his mouth, forcing it further back, ripping his cheeks open, steam from the burning flesh pouring from the wounds. He grabbed the end with his free hand. With both arms, he began jerking the stoker from one side to the other, pivoting it until his head was horizontally split in two. He fell to the ground, and the smell of burnt flesh filled the room. The others rose from their slumber, standing like soldiers at attention, awaiting orders from their general. The visitor squinted, then he pointed at Bishop. You're the biggest. Go ahead. 
do the most damage. December 12th, 2009. Bishop, under the spell of the visitor, drug each body, one in each hand, by their feet, out into the snow. He stacked 30 logs in a circle, dousing them with lighter fluid. The logs went up in a giant whoosh, oxygen being sucked straight into the burst of flames. Atop the massive fire, he tossed the bodies of his bandmates, manager and producer, that he had bludgeoned to death with whatever he could get his hands on. When he was finished, he climbed atop the fire himself, not struggling, not fighting it, but allowing the flames to swallow him, his skin bubbling and flowing off of his bones. December 18th, 2009. I was pissed when I pulled up and saw the sprinter was still there. Terry Blake had not been answering my calls, Derwin Dahl the same. The record I had greenlit had been due on the 15th. Normally, I don't show up unannounced and start spewing anger, but on that day I felt it was kind of necessary. I allowed thousands of dollars to be spent and I intended on hearing the product I had paid for. Bursting through the doors and into the hallway, I clenched my fists, trying, you know, to remain calm. I kept reminding myself they were only, you know, three days late. It was manageable, but damn it, I have three simple rules when I sign contracts with artists. One, do what you do. I believe you're among the best. You're already doing your best, so there's no pressure to feel like that needs to be expanded upon. Two, don't waste the opportunity. This is not party time. That will come later when you tour in support of the hard work you're doing right now. And three, be punctual. You're not the only iron in my fire, and my fire is full of artists doing the same fucking thing you're doing. So I wetted my lips and prepared myself to repeat rule number three when I swung the door open to the tracking room. I was expecting to see the five members of Hazy Howe pissed drunk and Terry pulling his own hair out. But what I saw had me scratching my head. Everything was tidy. Amplifiers back in their spots. Drums stored neatly on the racks. The rugs had even been vacuumed. The lights in the control room were on, so I ventured my way through the, you know, two big wooden doors. But it was the same situation in there. Except on the front padded armrest of the soundboard was a note. And on top of that note was a thumb drive. The note read, It is ready. Distribute immediately. Songs have been sent to vinyl manufacturer, CD manufacturer, and uploaded for iTunes release. No signature, but dated 12-15-09. I tapped the note a few times with the thumb drive and looked around. The silence in the room was maddening, so I stepped into the hall leading to the sleeping quarters, but there was no one there either. And that's when I heard him introduce himself from the cafeteria. Oh, I do love the coffee here. It's partially why I keep coming back. He pointed towards a second mug as I entered the vast and empty room. I nodded and he poured me a cup. You're wondering who I am. Probably less than you're wondering why the people you expected to be here are not here. He slid the cup over to me and continued. You will never see them again. No one will, actually. That will be part of the lore. Or, as you call it down here, the PR. 
That record you're holding, he pointed towards the thumb drive in my pocket, is part of a much, much bigger plan. You see, it's the 17th in a series of 23 works of art meant to completely disrupt the evil your people call good. Actually, they believe it to be good. It is truly astonishing how a set of behaviors can be implemented over various beliefs. I think that's what you refer to as religions. That they all call for nothing more than a strict code of obedience and hatred of any others not practicing within those beliefs. I cocked my eyebrow up and accepted the coffee. I tried to speak, but when he waved a hand in the air, I found myself speechless, only able to sip on coffee and listen to him. I mean, you keep your poor quiet, and all they want is nothing more than to suffer their entire lives and then be rewarded with death? That's not fair. You know that's not fair, right? I mean, you engage in wars, these massive death tours, in the name of gods you would never be able to fathom don't even exist. He must have sensed I had a question because he waved a hand again and I could speak, as if my tongue had been freed somehow. Uh, 17th? I asked. Oh man, I've been doing this for ages. I'm just a visitor. Someone you might call, you know, a curator. The musicians of Hazy Howe were picked as vessels, just like Salvador Dali and Vonnegut. They are hardly the first band we've picked. Man, I wish we really would have gotten to the Beatles, but, you know, we settled on Elvis before them. Would you be shocked if I told you the first in this series of 23 works of art to disrupt was actually the Bible? Holy shit, it was genius work, right? How much has that thing ripped through the fabric of reality for thousands of years? He waved a hand again and I came crashing down into a chair, unable to move a muscle. You see, this collection of songs, this band that will be shrouded in mystery, will further inspire questions of religion, science, reality, and it'll spark violence, so much violence. Feeling I was able to speak, I asked, but why? He smiled, followed by a low chuckle that echoed through the dining hall. <laughs> I mean, you have your entertainment, we have ours. That's when I got the overwhelming feeling that he was going to kill me, just for fun. Are you... He waved a hand again, and my mouth fell shut. Kill you? No, absolutely not. You're the most important piece of this puzzle. You are going to release this into the world for us. And if you must know, yes, the others are dead. But by each other's hand, not mine. He patted me on the back as he left the room, leaning down and whispering. Now get to work. You're probably thinking I'm just trying to revive the hype on this record, right? That I'm just some faded record exec squeezing as much potential out of some forgotten relic. Probably asking yourself how I know all of this. How I'm able to, you know, recollect what happened in the confines of Rocky Top Studios. I wasn't even there, right? It's actually quite simple, but very much will seem scripted. When he tapped me on the shoulder and told me to get to work, the entirety of events from December 3rd up until that moment played in my mind, formed into memories as if I had lived them all myself, from all seven points of view. He armed me with the legend so I could use it to sell the record. 
I stared at that thumb drive for three days when I got back to New York, thinking of everything from burning it to chucking it into the Hudson, contemplating halting the CD and vinyl production. But every time I had a thought of destroying it, I would receive an email from someone calling themselves the visitor. I knew it was him. The only text in the email reading, don't do it. The record was released on Christmas Day a week later. Two boys in Akron, Ohio died when the stage their choir was singing on collapsed. A family in Satter, New York was found slain when a member late to dinner stumbled into the blood-soaked home. An avalanche in Vail, Colorado claimed the lives of 36 people and nearly destroyed the lodge they were working to protect. In Savannah, Georgia, an entire neighborhood's worth of Transformers blew, causing one of the biggest fires in the city's history. You know, the earthquake in Chile, the tropical storm in Haiti. I have a list longer than a CVS receipt of terrible shit that has happened since that album became available. But I also know those happenings are nothing more but a drip in the ocean of violence, natural disasters, and accidents that have happened to humans since the dawn of our time. I shudder when I think of the words the visitor said nonchalantly to me as he left me there at Rocky Top Studios. Well, you have your entertainment. We have ours. Today's story was tracked, scored, mixed, and mastered at the Great Divide Den. I thank you for listening and look forward to seeing you again next week for another case of the Hebe Jeebies. <laughs>